Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah and Bean. And welcome back for yet another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. This is a very special episode about one of the greatest villains in weed history. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, we love to celebrate our weed history heroes, but this episode is about public enemy number one of this podcast. This is somebody whose very name brings a chill of paranoia, fear, rage. Yeah, truly. You know, when we talk about the cops being bad guys in many of these stories, especially when we're talking about America's history with cannabis, this guy is like the cop of cops, you know? In fact, if he was like about to enter a wrestling ring, like this would be part of the, you know, announcement form. They'd call him <laughs> the cop of cops. Uh, but worry not, even though we're talking about somebody who is totally not great in terms of weed, there is a great moment here and we think you're really going to like it. So uh, before we get started, uh, a little update. We now have a T Public page that's got some merch on it. So the link's going to be in the show notes. But if you want some great moments in weed history gear, uh, there's a place for it now. And we're really excited about it. And we're going to be updating it with new products. Yeah, I just took a note in my great moments in weed history notebook. Uh, excuse me while I just take a sip of delicious tea from my great moments in weed history mug. Oh. Oh, very oh, fancy. I'm the envy of all my friends? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. Get this mug, change your life, and, uh, you know, show some love to uh, to weed history. Now, now, you may have heard us denounce capitalism in all forms on this <laughs> podcast. You Many... might be like, hey, you guys are uh, total fucking hypocrites now. <laughs> These mugs... These notebooks, these cell phone cases especially, will destroy capitalism from within when you purchase them. Yeah, exactly. Because when you use capitalism to fund anarchists, <laughs> in the end, you know, you're sort of, it's like the snake eating its own tail. You know what I mean? Walk with us for a second while we uh, justify why we're uh, trying to sell merch. We should mention Tee Public is a very reputable company. We really looked into it. They treat artists well. They treat creators well. Uh, it's quality products. So, so we do stand behind it. Another great way you can support the show directly, and those of you who are already with us on Patreon, uh, we love you. Go to Patreon, Great Moments in Weed History page. We got all kinds of extras for you and a really fun community to be a part of. And also, you can just tell 10 or 100 of your friends to check out the show. That is actually the biggest thing we need and would love you for it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon and, of course, to everyone who just enthusiastically listens and tells people and helps us spread the word. Uh, we love you. Okay, great. So with all that squared away, uh, I think we're close to ready to getting into our story. I'm just uh, putting the finishing touches on a little fatty over here. Oh, well, that is certainly fits with our theme today. And every day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more like thrice a day, but, yeah, you know, that's, you know, morning, noon, and night. You know, that's the only times I smoke weed. Well, I'll be honest with you. I used to smoke marijuana. 
in the late evening. Oh, occasionally the early evening or mid-evening, but that was it. The late evening, mid-evening, or early evening, but that was it. Never at dusk! No. So I'm actually in the middle of uh, testing uh, for the Emerald Cup. I, you know, I'm a judge in the BHO category, so I have to take at least six to eight dabs a day uh, just to keep up with that duty, you know? So I, I'm well prepared for this recording today. I believe that's part of the Stanford University Dabological Protocol, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Northern California really has this shit dialed in, you know? So, so we are ramping up for a very exciting season four. We've got some really fantastic stories lined up, and we've even got a little mini-series uh, that we can't even tell you anything about yet, but that we're very, very excited about. But this episode is a little bit of a standalone, and it ties into a brand new movie that's about to come out. Yeah, this was actually an episode I had in mind for season four, but heard about this movie the people versus billy holiday uh it's actually premiering on hulu on february 26th there's already a golden globe nomination for andrew day who plays billy holiday and it's a story of how this iconic and brave and incredible singer was hounded throughout her life by none other than harry j anslinger head of the federal bureau of narcotics and also public enemy number one of this podcast yes and the bad guy in our story today but once again there is a happy ending to this one so stay with us through the tough times and you shall be rewarded uh okay great so i think we've got everything squared away now my joint is rolled and ready to go i am rolled and ready to go at this end as well now if you're not quite there please some usually i say hit pause if you want now i'm saying this is a must smoke episode it's one thing to celebrate our weed heroes but this one we are about blowing smoke in the face of the ghost of the biggest human paraquat piece of shit in modern weed history so roll one up pack a dab do what you got to do to join us because we're ready if you're ready for another great moment in weed history. All righty, I'm about to light up. Bean, get us going, man. Yeah, well, I'm going to start this episode with a quote from the art of war to set the tone which oh, is wow it's like ghost dog up in here <laughs> to know your enemy you must become your enemy and so we're gonna set for ourselves initially the very uncomfortable but necessary course of who the fuck is ari anslinger where did this person come from how did he amass so much power and how was he able to use it in such an oppressive and shitty way for so long that even though uh, this is somebody who died in the 70s, was out of office in the 60s, was literally fucking with Billie Holiday and, and uh, jazz musicians of the 1920s and 30s, but who also has a profound 
lasting impact on our whole country and our whole world to this day. So, yeah, truly. And you know, what's interesting about his background is that it embodies all of the worst, worst things about social structure, right? Nepotism and just, you know, uh, corruption and greed and, uh, you know, sanctimoniousness and like, you know, all of these really just awful qualities. You could not have made a better weed villain in a fucking lab. Yeah. And, you know, a good time for one last reminder. There's a very, very happy ending to this. You are still listening to great moments in weed history. Mm-hmm. And we promise you that in this and every episode. Yeah. Like we always say, uh, the 800 volume shitty moments in weed history <laughs> is uh it's on the shelf and we don't ever want to pick it up <laughs> but this is our little crossover episode um mm-hmm. so born in 1892 harry you want to guess on the j what the harry uh jerk off <laughs> <laughs> correct Born in 1892, <laughs> Harry Jerkoff Anslinger was working full-time for the all-powerful Pennsylvania Railroad by the time he turned 14. This is the era of the railway barons. These are the richest and most powerful people in the country. The railroad, it's not just you know going to another town. It's how all of commerce is, is happening in the country is on the railroad lines. So these are kind of almost the first oligarchs in American history. Oh, wow. Yeah, the railroad completely revolutionized everything. And of course, like all massive innovations in America, there were just a handful of people capitalizing on it and fucking everybody else. Yes, and that's going to come into play in our story because uh, as a young man, uh, Harry, uh, was it Jerkwad? Anslinger? I... <laughs> yeah. Jerkoff. <laughs> Jerkoff. I think we'll keep, we'll keep trying these. Uh... In fact, jerking off is too pleasurable of a thing <laughs> to even name this asshole after. Truth, truth. Harry Jerkwad Assholer. As a, as a young man, he had this dream that he wanted to be a classical concert pianist. But he never gets further than a couple of gigs as a substitute piano player during silent movies. Oh, my God. Why is it that fascists are always failed artists? It's really a crazy thing. I mean, Hitler, you know, you look at uh, Ben Shapiro, that prick, you know what I mean? He's a failed screenwriter, right? Like, there is definitely a pattern here about people who fail at the arts because they just don't have soul, you know what I mean? And they end up becoming embittered and using their powers for evil. Yeah, that's really how we should pitch art funding in this country is as a uh, as a stopgap against fascism. Although that would uh, other people would obviously see that as a reason to get rid of it. Where's our next Hitler going to come from? I don't know why I went into a Jewish accent for that one. <laughs> hey, where's our next Hitler going to come from if we don't defund the arts? Anyway, that's also, you know, it, when you support us on Patreon, uh, you prevent us from becoming weed fascists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We could become the next MedMen if you don't buy our <laughs> coffee mug. You know? There's our sales pitch. Okay, so we have Anslinger, the, the embittered failed musician, working at the railroad, uh, and... He's just a workaday guy. 
But then when he was 24, so he's been working there 10 years, he figures out this fraud against the railroad and saves them a million dollars in today's money. This guy is trying to defraud the railroad by saying his wife was killed by the railroad when she actually committed suicide. He finds out and he saves the railroad a million dollars. He was like a a masked man tied her up and put her on the railroad tracks. (laughs) And it was him. (laughs) Yeah. That's how you get ahead in the world. (laughs) So he gets promoted after this to captain of the railroad police. So this is the move. This is what moves him. He was a router. He just, you know, fixed the trains and made sure they were on the right track and probably would have just been an asshole among assholes. Right. But but now he, he got a taste of swinery. He got a taste of swinery and he becomes uh, the railroad police captain, which makes you the enemy of every hobo in the in the country. Oh, my God, of course, because so at this time, there's lots of people riding the rails, you know, uh, the poor and destitute folks, uh, you know, who have no other means. And of course, you know, they're getting thrown off of uh, railway cars in the middle of nowhere, left and right, because, uh, yeah, they're unwanted there. And this is another population in the country that was treated as less than human. Really, I mean, hobos came from all walks of life and backgrounds, but the entire society looked at them as subhuman people in a lot of ways. And and Harry Anslinger uh, is put right into this role. And he also now has come to the attention of two powerful men who are going to shape the rest of his life. Pennsylvania Railroad Board member Andrew Mellon, who was the, the second richest person in the world at that time, a literal, like, cartoonish fat cat. Oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> and Ivy Lee, who was just then helping to invent the field of modern public relations on behalf of his deep-pocketed clients like the Pensy, the Pennsylvania Railroad. Ah, okay, cool. So I don't know who Ivy Lee is, but Andrew Mellon, I'm very, very familiar with. You know, if Harry Ainslinger is like the most public face of weed villain in history, then Andrew Mellon is the guy right behind him, truly. I mean, you know, the stories go deep. This is a guy who was an independent magnate and then also became the Treasury Secretary. If you've ever seen Boardwalk Empire, uh, he's in there. This guy is such a massive dick. And, you know, when you talk about uh, corporatism influencing government, I mean, it was just unabashed. Andrew Mellon was that guy. And by the way, this is uh, the guy who takes half the name of Carnegie Mellon University. Absolutely. So this is like capital incarnate at this time when the railroads were the most powerful industry and when modern uh robber baron capitalism is really being born in this country and then on the other side of him poison ivy as ivy lee was known to his friends that that's yes says that he invented the press junket and the publicity tour he issued the world's first corporate press release and otherwise basically made sure that when money talked people fucking listened and did as they were told he is part of inventing uh, propaganda as we understand it in the modern world. 
So in one ear, he's hearing from this icon of robber baron capitalism. And in his other ear, he's learning the ways of public relations and propaganda. And that's swirling in his brain as he rises through the ranks. Uh, and eventually, as you mentioned, Andrew Mellon becomes the Secretary of the Treasury, and he uses that position to get Harry Anslinger a job with the State Department in the Diplomatic Corps. Right. And so was Anslinger also his nephew or son-in-law or something like that? There is. We should talk just in general about the, the field of Harry Anslinger studies. There's a lot of quotes that are attributed to Harry Anslinger that are just not found in the record anywhere. He is unabashedly the horrible, racist, fascist villain that you've been told. Uh, but there's a lot of just loose internet-type quotes attributed to him. Now, as far as was his wife Andrew Mellon's niece... Uh, I, I've seen scholarship that I trust saying yes. I've seen scholarship I trust saying no. I, I think it has to be kind of left as an uh, unknown known at this point. Wow, that's so weird because it wasn't even that long ago. But it's interesting that, you know, this guy who was so keen on propagating propaganda now has internet propaganda working against him <laughs> and like painting him to be even worse than he actually was it's just a really weird uh kind of you know communication over the ages yeah and and you know there's not I, i'm not losing any sleep over it uh if if people you know misattribute bad quotes to to harry anslinger he certainly deserves it in some cosmic sense but you know we both talk about scholarship is important to us being actually uh, reflective of history. I, I, I'm not going to use quotes or facts and stuff that, that aren't proven facts in the record. One fun fact is that uh, Poison Ivy, the propaganda masters, his nephew was none other than uh, William S. Burroughs. What? That's so random. <laughs> except that that's like what burroughs is reacting against oh yeah i i guess that actually makes sense it skips a generation as they say yeah well he was like under his uncle's wing at one point he learned a lot from him but then turned against him pretty 180 so wow that's crazy a story for another day but real fucking crazy so harry anslinger has now through help from Andrew Mellon moved from working for the Pennsylvania Railroad to this job in the State Department, and he's assigned as a diplomat to a post in Germany. Oh, boy. Okay, so uh, he's going over there and picking up the vibes, as it were, huh? Well, he is there, yes, uh, for the end of World War I and the aftermath, which is quite clearly uh, the rise of the Nazis. And... Assigned to this post during the rise of the Third Reich, Anslinger served as an intelligence asset. We know that for sure, but we're just not sure on whose side. Uh, because, yes, there is certainly evidence to show 
that he didn't spy on the Nazis so much as he became one. Holy crap. This guy is somehow even more fascist than I thought he was before. <laughs> I, I did not know about this chapter of his history, but that is fucking crazy. And yeah, I mean... You know, this is a time, keep in mind, where Nazism wasn't just universally demonized, you know? Like, there was a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden, if you've ever seen that. There was, like, a short film uh, about this. And, you know, it was an ideology that, in history, we look at as, like, oh, my God, the most reprehensible. But at the time, it didn't seem that way. Does that sound familiar to anyone <laughs> out there? <laughs> but, uh yeah. Uh, that's pretty fucking crazy and not really that surprising when it comes to Anslinger. Just so we're all on the same page, according to the dictionary, fascism is a form of far-right, ding, authoritarian, ding, ultra-nationalism, ding, 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 characterized by dictatorial power, ding, 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 forcible suppression of opposition, ding, ding, and a strong <laughs> regimentation of society and the economy. And this came to prominence in the early 20th century, this time that Harry Anslinger is in Germany. Gong. It's like, I, I, of course, knew, as you do, and a lot of people listening, I think, the outlines of who Harry Anslinger is and was and what he did. But that is a detail that uh, I didn't know. And the... T it, you know, when you're working backwards from this person who, you know, we're we're not joking when we call him a fascist. His, his you know, we're, we're having some fun with the term, but the idea that this person who later acted like a complete fucking fascist and his formative time in government was spent during the rise of the Nazis in Germany, something he never had any complaints about, uh, it, it does add up. And this is a time uh, when, for instance, the newspapers still ran articles like Mussolini leads way and crushing dope evil. And uh, that that Madison Square Garden Nazi rally was in 1939. So this Wow, was, that's late. <laughs> that's real late. And if you've ever heard the podcast, which I know we both love, um, you must remember this, their series on the Red Scare, they introduced me to a, a phrase called prematurely anti-fascist whoa which was like oh okay now we all agree that the nazis are bad but you were talking about it a little early weren't you it's like <laughs> <laughs> no shit i have not heard that series but i do love that show shout out karina longworth she makes a really excellent show you must remember this but okay so 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 we're set up now we've got all like the worst possible ingredients for a person what happens next so now we have these forces in a in a brew propaganda fascism and anslinger we see this leads to this racial scapegoating and this dehumanization as part of the drug war um and i was reminded of the voltaire quote Anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And I think, like, what's more absurd than waging a war on a plant? Yeah, no, but absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of these sort of mindless crusades in a way. Yeah, there's an absurdity to fascism. And I think we've lived that through the last four years and hopefully sliding away from fascism but the absurdity of it has been uh ever present 
Um, yeah, and and when we say absurdity, also, I mean, really, what we're talking about is stupidity, right? Is a sort of like anti pragmatism sense, <laughs> right? And and that again, like declaring war on a plant is is exactly it falls right into that category. Yeah, we went from absurdity to atrocity of of the drug war, um, and this all flows with with Harry Anslinger. So after. Uh, after Germany, he gets assigned to Nassau in the Bahamas, which for any normal person would be time to fucking kick it on the beach. Hell yeah. <laughs> but he hates sunshine and uh, sand and palm trees, I'm guessing. And rum. This is rum. Uh, yes, this is the period of alcohol prohibition in the United States. So the British at that time are the government of, of Nassau in the Bahamas. And they don't give a shit about alcohol prohibition. But Anslinger comes in and he forces them to put all these new rules against smugglers into place. And soon it works and there's no more liquor in the United States and it's impossible to get a drink. <laughs> yeah, right. So I think, you know, like we really had like a working model of how poorly prohibition works when you're prohibiting something that is just you know naturally attractive to human beings something that gets you lit you know what i'm saying and of course it led to just rampant organized crime it led to rampant disorganized crime and just in general you know when you try to suppress something or you know like push it below the radar it's not on your fucking radar anymore i mean this is something that we see here in california Ever since, you know, switching to recreational pot under Prop 64, the black market has boomed. You know what I mean? Because this thing that was quasi-legal, you know, having like a medical dispensary with sort of a flimsy license, as soon as it's illegal, well, it's about to be pushed in the shadows and all you're doing is inconveniencing yourself if what you were trying to do was control the flow of drugs. Yeah, absolutely. So... Alcohol prohibition succeeds only in enriching powerful, violent criminal syndicates, corrupting law enforcement, politicians in the courts, and making a lot of people lose respect for the law. Um, but the so-called Anslinger Accord in the Bahamas, his get-rid-of-booze plan, uh, does impress his old friend and perhaps uncle Andrew Mellon who is now the secretary of the treasury, one of the most powerful people in the country. And he decides Harry Anslinger should now work on alcohol prohibition full time. Oh, wow. So he was so convincing at this thing that Andrew Mellon was like, oh, I have uh, an interest in prohibition as well. And, you know, again, we're talking about sort of unsubstantiated historical claims involving these people. Of course, I think, you know, we're inevitably going to get to this something that's been described as a conspiracy theory, but also there's a lot of evidence for, which is that there was massive collusion uh, between people like Andrew Mellon, between the Rockefellers, between William Randolph Hearst, with Anslinger as their mouthpiece to conspire to shut down challenges to their respective industries, meaning oil uh you know subsequently plastics artificial fabrics paper you know the dupont family was was involved as well and there's sort of like you know this number of industries who were challenged initially by 
alcohol or, you know, plant-based ethanol, plant-based fuels, for which hemp is a, you know, a, a really excellent source, and subsequently cannabis, which, again, is this very, very useful thing that has a lot of different applications, which is challenging to a lot of different industries, and that that's why we have modern cannabis prohibition. I think that story in its broadest sense is absolutely true. And whether your idea of a conspiracy is is five portly, suspended, bald white men smoking cigars with their feet up on Andrew Mellon's desk, or how capitalism through systematic incentives replicates itself with the same people on top it's still a conspiracy and it's still how the economy works and it's still a big part of this story anslinger is as to take a line from apocalypse now he's uh in one way he's this powerful horrible figure uh and in another way he's a grocery boy sent to collect the bill uh yes and- very true yeah, that's true. Because, you know, look, to everybody under his boot, right, he was this very powerful figure with impunity. You know, he was a guy with a badge, which allowed him to, to do all these things. But essentially, he was just a goon for these much, much more powerful people that you don't even see, you know? Yeah. And so, and then the other thing to not lose sight of is it's only a few years after the end of alcohol prohibition that cannabis prohibition at the federal level starts. Um, And that is no coincidence. And so for an example, uh, in 1928, Harry Anslinger is writing this position paper where he's saying the way to win the war on alcohol is to start going after individual drinkers instead of just the people who make booze or sell it at a speakeasy. Uh, So he wants to ramp up two years after that when it's become clear that alcohol prohibition is on its way out he just switches on a dime and says okay it was a lost cause uh but obviously that's it's not going to be his last attempt to ban something yeah and you know uh, there's also this old story that actually when henry ford developed the model t that it was initially supposed to run on plant-based ethanol that it was supposed to run on corn derived and hemp derived ethanol and that he had this vision of people driving across the country and stopping at farm stands that made their own fuel but that the oil interests including rockefeller including Mellon, were like if you're about to invent this ubiquitous product it's not going to run on something that people can grow in their backyards or on their farms it's going to run on something that only we have access to which is petroleum, right? And that that was sort of the purpose of prohibition, was to say, okay, all alcohol, right, any sort of challenge to fuel, right, including ethanol or alcohol, is now illegal. And by the time the prohibition was lifted, right, a lot of damage had been done, but petroleum had been established as the main fuel that the economy runs on. And so it did its job. They didn't need prohibition anymore, And, you know, they could set up to take down the next substance that challenges them. Absolutely. And that works at the level of the Mellons and the Rockefellers. But for Harry Anslinger, if it's not going to be alcohol prohibition and you are in charge of 
prohibition enforcement for the government, you damn well need something new to prohibit. Uh, and so we see what happens. We should note, you know, the first laws in the states against cannabis long predate Harry Anslinger's time in the federal government. Um, and they actually do you know do you know when they go back to what what's sort of the catalyst to those first uh, weed laws? Yeah, so as far as I understand it, uh, it was this view that it's something that's used by Native Americans, uh, you know, and Native Mexicans, and that it was prejudice against these people that initially started prohibition in isolated places in the United States. Yes, all the first uh, laws crop up, crop up, uh, in the, <laughs> <laughs> just checking, uh, in the early 1900s, and it's all states along the Mexican border. And I'll just read from Eric Schlosser's uh, excellent book, Reefer Madness, uh, that discusses this history. And he writes, the political upheaval in Mexico that culminated in the revolution of 1910 led to a wave of Mexican immigration to the United States throughout the Southwest. The prejudices and fears that greeted these peasant immigrants also extended to their traditional means of intoxication, smoking marijuana. Police officers in Texas claimed that marijuana incited violent crimes aroused a, quote, lust for blood, and gave its users, quote, superhuman strength. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, they were right about one of those things, the superhuman strength. I think we all know how, uh, you know, the stereotype that stoners are, you know, incredibly body strong. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I think that it, it really does kind of exemplify how racial prejudice and drug prohibition have always been deeply, deeply intertwined. It's looking at a cultural trait and being disgusted with it because you're deeply prejudiced and, and racist and then designing laws around that prejudice. Yeah, and I think what we're talking about and a nod to another one of our favorite podcasts, you're wrong about, it's a moral panic. Uh, this is, and, and once you have a moral panic around something, rationality reason and even any sense of perspective just goes out the window um and here's another article this is from the new york times in 1927 just to give you a, a flavor of moral panic uh and this is the new york times you know? uh, i've already got a flavor of moral panic my <laughs> friend. <laughs> the headline mexican family go insane succinct from headline, you know, I've written a lot of headlines. Sometimes you got to fit it. That's one of those headlines where you're like, "Is that news?" <laughs> <laughs> and here's 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 the crux of the story. It's about this family that was so hungry that they just ate wild weed plants to eat something. And it says, "A widow and her four children have been driven insane by eating the marijuana plant." according to doctors who say there is no hope of saving the children's lives and that the mother will be insane for the rest of her life. Oh, my God. It's really interesting to me that they didn't attribute anything to the severe malnutrition or starvation <laughs> and that they were like, oh, it was because they ate whatever was around them and now they're, you know, they're fucked for life. It's like, uh, give them some bread. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's also like, I, there's a little, there's, I read the whole story. It, this story is filed like based on like four hours after they ate it. Some doctor is like, that's it. 
That's it. They're dead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, and so this is what's coming out of the newspapers at people. And meanwhile, most of the rest of the country has literally never heard of marijuana. Uh, they've never heard that word. They don't know what it refers to unless uh, they know to associate it with the medical grade cannabis tinctures that are being made by Park Davis and other pharmaceutical companies of the day, like first generation pharmaceutical companies or the hashish candies that were uh, widely available uh, by mail order and from pharmacies. Yeah, Louisa May Alcott. Right. As a, in, in, in that episode, we talk about uh, hash infused candies, right? Or bonbons. Bonbons, so candies. Whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you know, this is a time when most of the quote unquote worst drugs of, you know, this drug war era were not only legal, but pharmaceutical. So cannabis tincture, right, uh, was found in pharmacies. We don't realize how recently, right? This is just a little over a century ago, right? That these drugs were just medicines. They were just considered medicines. And now all these lines are about to be drawn between what is the legal version of this substance and what is the illegal version of this substance. And, and in particular to cannabis, uh, what ends up happening in this information vacuum is that instead of learning about weed from doctors or scientists or patients or scholarly journals or even like weed smokers, uh, most people learn about it from the newspapers, in particular, those owned by an OG uh, media baron by the name of William Randolph Hearst. Okay, so we're really knocking down the list of American weed villains here. <laughs> I mean, th this guy is a, a massive dickbag, a complete racist. You know, we were talking about uh, the proliferation of the word marijuana and, you know, the idea that this is something that Mexicans and indigenous people use and it makes them crazy, give them super strength or whatever. A lot of this bullshit was freely propagated by Hearst, whose family and company are still very, very powerful today, of course. And he manifested all his racism through his very, very influential media channels. Sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> Ding! Uh, yeah, Hearst papers were, were some of the first nationally syndicated uh, newspaper columnists. So people who could have... Uh, an article come out and it's all over the whole country the next day. Uh, for instance, on January 31st, 1923, millions of Hearst readers uh, woke up to this headline, Hashish Goads Users to Bloodlust. Wow. Bloodlust? I mean, regular lust, maybe. <laughs> bloodlust, <laughs> I don't know. Let me... Uh... Let me read from this article and maybe you can uh, do a real-time fact check if anything comes up that's not accurate in this 1923 Hearst article. Okay, sounds good. Okay. By the tons, it is coming into this country. Yeah, probably true. Yeah, probably true. That's, that's not that much weed. Tons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the deadly. <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> poison. Eh, eh. that racks and tears not only the body, 
but the very heart and soul of every human being who becomes a slave to it in any of its cruel and devastating forms. Whoa, it does not compute. <laughs> There's smoke coming out of your fact check machine. Yeah. Not the good kind. <laughs> Marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Oh boy. Okay, the machine is officially broken. <laughs> Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse of hard, horrible specters. Wow, that's fucking insane. And also, like, you know, how can somebody make this description without having tried this thing? I mean, that's the thing that strikes me. Like, you know, I would be willing to believe that this is some sort of Maureen Dowd situation where, you know, it's like, oh, like... Karen eats edible once and is like, this is really bad. I had to think about things in my subconscious that I've been <laughs> suppressing for years. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, that I would maybe understand. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that at this point, uh, you know, these reporters haven't actually tried this stuff. 100%. Um, and, and here I save the best, the best fact to check for last, I think. Uh, according to the Hearst newspapers, it is possible to, quote, grow enough marijuana in a window box to drive the whole population of the United States stark, staring, raving mad. Now, that's a sales pitch for weed right there. <laughs> He's like, you know, from a single planter box, I can grow enough weed to make us all fucking crazy. I'm like, sign me up for that. Uh, CSA box, please. Yeah, that uh, very sentiment was the inspiration for the George Carlin album Toledo Window Box. When I was like 15, 16 and learning about grass, it was Panamanian green. They used the whole word. Now you've got Panama red, Acapulco gold, naturally. And you run into some nice offshoots. You've got Chicago green, which is really a Mexican green, but it's grown near that gold. And then there's, uh, well, a guy laid something on us once. He said it was Toledo Window Box. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> R.I.P. the legend. Yeah, definite friend of the podcast, George Carlin. Okay. So back to Harry Jackwad Asslicker, uh, the enemy of this podcast. Uh, and by 1930, he has now got himself appointed the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And this Hearst media campaign against weed has been going for a solid decade uh, and so one of the first things that uh, Anslinger does is he starts to compile all of these newspaper stories against weed into what he calls his gore file, uh, which is all about people committing horrible crimes because they smoked half a joint with a person of color. Oh, my God. So, yeah, this also starts getting into a lot of like the sort of circumstantial blame that that ends up going on to cannabis because you know a lot of times they'll find other substances that have actually fucked a person up or you know impacted their health in a negative way and they'll also find cannabis so they'll be like it must have been the weed you know what i mean where obviously we know now weed is the one substance that is not going to kill you yeah absolutely and and anslinger he is 
now taking these lessons in propaganda and public relations that he learned from Poison Ivy Lee, this is the era of like Reefer Madness the movie and the whole press wants these stories about sex and drugs and violence because it titillates people. And as long as they could put a moral veneer on it, uh, that's what's going to sell papers. And Anslinger realizes he could take these old stories that were bullshit like what I just read to you. Then he tells the story, puts his own byline on it, and sells it back to the newspapers. And he's creating this whole echo chamber of propaganda against weed with himself as the center always putting himself up there as the hero and as the person who should, of course, have a huge, huge budget. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. Talk about controlling the narrative. Nobody's ever controlling the narrative for good for some reason. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everybody who wants to control the narrative is trying to do it, you know, in this dickish way. And, you know, look, again, we, we just see echoes of this, uh, you know, into modern day where there is this real effort to scare people, right? Because when people are scared... They're sort of prone, you know what I mean? And, and then you can do whatever the fuck you want uh, while they're sitting there uh, just, you know, running around in circles screaming because of this imaginary fear, whether it's communists or it's minorities or it's drug addicts or whoever it is you want to say, you know, we have our boogeyman today. I mean, and on all sides of the coin, everyone has a boogeyman now, right? And really, it's, you know, this is an American tradition. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a moral panic is never about the moral. It's always about the panic. Uh, and as you say, you can use that panic in a variety of ways. And and so Anslinger is reaching out to not just, he's not, like, his audience isn't scientists and doctors. He's reaching out to parents groups, religious organizations, and the fucking cops. And that's where he builds this coalition of support and he's got his articles out and he even i this is something i also discovered uh, through researching this episode and and you know something another thing for us to fucking resent about this asshole he optioned his book for a movie and there's actually a movie called assassin of youth based on his uh magazine article actually what? That's insane. When did this movie come out? It came out in 1937. It's like a clone of Reefer Madness. They're very similar. There's no... What? They're not connected. They're not in the same uh, cinematic anti-weed universe. <laughs> but they might as well be. <laughs> what are they? What's that? Marijuana weed cigarettes. Didn't you ever smoke them? No. Say, oh. you missed a real kick. Something different. That's mm. right. And then it says the man who sells them told her they wouldn't hurt it. Mm. Come on, give me one. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Oh, and all of these films are in the HJAU, the <laughs> Harry J. Ainslinger uh, multiverse, really. <laughs> so by 1937, and that is a year that is ingrained in every historically aware uh, weed person's head mm -hmm. as when weed really first became illegal yeah this is federal prohibition and really it's 
not so much made illegal as there's this massive tax put on it so high that no one could ever pay the tax. Right. So it's called the Marijuana Tax Act, of course. Yeah. And you will go on our on our Instagram. You can see the actual tax stamps that you could theoretically have bought. That's pretty cool. Uh, it, it represents something terrible, but it's like the government actually put out this stamp that you were supposed to buy to put on your on your weed to sell it. But it was priced so high. It was just a way of using the tax law to create prohibition. Yeah. And and it also it spells the word marijuana with an H. And I guess it's a good time to mention, you know, we don't really love the word marijuana. I think that, you know, within cannabis world, there's a lot of backlash to that word uh, because it does have racist roots, you know, and it was used as a discriminatory term for the substance that we love for a very, very long time. Uh, And if you're sort of, you know, a noob or whatever, a little tip for you is don't call it marijuana in front of weed people because uh, you're bound to offend somebody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the word existed in Mexico, but it was used uh, as in the in this newspaper era, very specifically as a way to link it to this anti-Mexican-American immigration sentiment. That's So that's where the racist overtones and undertones and every tone of that word come into play. So in in 1937, this all comes to a head in Washington, D.C., when the Treasury Department hosts this weed conference. Uh, And prior to this, Harry Anslinger writes to 30 experts of varying kinds to ask, should uh, weed be made illegal? 29 of them write back and say, absolutely not. That's nuts, dummy. One of them writes back and says, yes, that's a great plan. How how do you think he presented the evidence at this conference? Yeah, he was like, Dr. <laughs> Krakenbrain over here <laughs> says that weed is a fucking poison. And I mean, look, once again, I mean, how many times have we seen this denial of science? 97% of climate scientists agree on something. And somehow the 3% that are the merchants of doubt manage to penetrate in conservative thinking. It's what's convenient, you know, and science is not convenient. You're going to hear what you want to use for your own purposes if you're a dick. And that's what we're seeing happen here. They hear from only one hostile witness, this guy, Dr. William C. Woodward of the American Medical Association. And he reads them the riot act. He is like, nothing you are saying is proven anywhere. This is all bullshit. Uh, I called the Bureau of Prisons. They say... You are completely inaccurate in everything you're saying about this. I called. They're saying that like one in every three school kids age six in 1937 smokes weed five times a day. And he's like, (laughs) I I called the Children's Bureau and they don't even know what marijuana is. They've never had a case of it with a kid. Uh, And of course, that changes everything, right? Once they hear from an expert. Scientific consensus is going to be completely ignored. Yeah, you have to get people to believe in these absurdities. Um, And of course, not everybody does. It's, you know, one thing you realize in history is sometimes you look back and because history is written a certain way and a big part of what this podcast is, is 
you think, oh, everybody signed on for this moral panic. Everybody just went along with it. But there were these dissenting voices. Another was a congressman named John M. Coffey. He tried to put a bill in to investigate the FBN, which was notoriously corrupt because it came out of alcohol prohibition, which was notoriously corrupt. Uh, and John M. Coffey said, if we, the representatives of the people, are to continue to let our narcotics authorities conduct themselves in a manner tantamount to upholding and in effect supporting the billion dollar drug racket, we should at least be able to explain to our constituents why we do so. Yeah, truly. And I mean, this is something that's never really been done. You know, this was never explained and it wasn't explained when it was, you know, reinforced and sort of, you know, reinvigorated by Nixon. It was never explained when it was once again deployed by Reagan or by Clinton, for that matter. You know what I mean? We have really had a, a long running standard of not explaining these actions. You know, America's actions in the drug war. I mean, look, the CIA uh, in Nicaragua, like, you know, importing cocaine and then like proliferating crack. Nobody has ever, you know, uh, paid the price for that or nobody's ever come out and like, you know, tried to explain that or, or, or uh, you know, really justify why the fuck it happened. Um, but but yeah, but but anyway, it's it is some serious bullshit. Yeah. So what we see is, you know, alcohol prohibition for everything we, we talked about really built modern organized crime in this country. Uh, it, of course, always existed in different forms, but it became this huge industry because of the huge profits to be made selling alcohol under prohibition. When that went away, it was replaced by the drug war, which now sustains uh, organized crime around the world. This happens at this moment when both the FBN and... Uh, organized crime are in the same boat they're facing this huge budget crisis after the end of alcohol prohibition and there's one solution that suits both of them uh which is to go after narcotics uh that gives the fbn something to do directly and it creates a new market for organized crime and harry anslinger was ahead of a program at the fbn where 20,000, in a very short period of time, doctors were arrested in this country for prescribing opiates to people struggling with addiction. So where does that send the people? You know, you're struggling with addiction. You're used to going to your doctor. You get a maintenance dose. Hey, maybe it'd be healthier if you stopped using, but you have a solution and you're part of society. As soon as these 20,000 doctors are arrested, guess what? Nobody's willing to set up a clinic and help people with addictions. That pushes them to the underground market, which is going to be supplied, of course, by the same organized crime groups that oh. became so powerful selling alcohol. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, look at the, the sophistication of these tactics 
in a drug war. You know what I mean? Like that, that is really incredible. Take out the doctors who are keeping potential addicts off the street and then force those addicts on, onto the street. And, you know, you're sort of stoking that market. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of these doctors who is arrested by the FBN was a very prominent physician. And he wrote an entire book, which was pretty much suppressed, accusing Harry Anslinger of doing this on purpose in collusion with organized crime. And that is a murky world. It's a very difficult thing to prove. There's no sort of smoking gun showing that, but the links between the FBN and organized crime are certainly there. And the idea that, you know, now we look at how the drug war, uh, the DEA will go after one cartel because they're in cahoots with another cartel. Well, this was happening in Anslinger's day as well. And the FBN individual agents were definitely corrupt and working directly with organized crime. And there's a lot of reason to believe Harry Anslinger was either a part of that or allowed that to happen for his own purposes and for his own consolidation of power. Wow. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it goes beyond duplicitousness. I mean, he's playing literally every side, uh, you know, in, in order to advance his own agenda. It is just, I mean, I just want to take a step back again and reflect on how cartoonishly evil uh, this guy is and also how things have not changed. I mean, you know, every time we talk about, uh, you know, some aspect of his crusade, you know, we're really just reflecting things that have happened since and that are still happening right now. So we've talked in the early, we've talked about one early target of the drug war and of the war on weed specifically being uh, Mexican-Americans, war refugees coming to this country uh, at the turn of the century. And we talked in another episode about a second group that An Harry Anslinger targeted in the early days of the war on weed. Oh, the jazz scene. Yes. We did an episode about Louis Armstrong and a lot of these great uh, weed songs that were written, like Reefer Man from Cab Calloway, If You're a Viper from Fats Waller. Yeah, which is in our theme song. Yes. Um, and it got so far that there's actually a memo from Harry Anslinger uh, where he said, this is him writing to FBN agents. Please prepare all cases in your jurisdiction involving musicians in violation of the marijuana laws. We will have a great national roundup arrest of all such persons on a single day. Holy shit. So it's like literally just trying to like kill the scene in one go. Because, you know, look, this is the jazz scene of the 30s. Everybody is smoking weed at a minimum. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a lot of other crazy shit going on. Once again, it's, you know, using something uh, seemingly innocuous and then blowing it up into something awful uh, so that you can target the people that you want to target. And in this case, it's people of color who are, you know, having a good time and, you know, just representing values that these racist pieces of shit uh, don't want to see in America. So now they have their perfect scapegoat. Yes. Uh, but this initial plan to arrest jazz musicians all over the country 
on the same day in a national roundup, uh, which was really based on national roundups of leftist uh, labor organizers that happened in this country, by the way, not to go down another rabbit hole, but uh, it doesn't work with the jazz musicians. Uh, Any guess why? Hmm. I mean, it does sound like a really, really complicated operation to execute. So I can imagine, you know, uh, that the the potential arrestees are just too fragmented of a group to actually nail like that. Yeah, that's basically it. In a, in a nutshell, I'm, I'm going to refer to a, a book from Johan Hari. It's called Chasing the Scream. That gives a really incredible biography of Harry Anslinger. It's also the book that was optioned for the movie. Uh, the People versus Billie Holiday. Um, and this is what he wrote about it. He said, uh, the jazz world had one weapon that saved them from this roundup idea. Hmm. Absolute solidarity. Oh, no snitching. No snitching. No, no stitches either, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anslinger's men could find almost no one willing to snitch. And whenever one of them was busted, they all chipped in to bail him out. In the end, the Treasury Department told Anslinger he was wasting his time on a community that couldn't be fractured. So he scaled down his focus until it settled like a laser on a single target, perhaps the greatest female jazz vocalist there ever was. He wanted to bring the full thump of the federal government down upon that scourge of modern society, his public enemy, number one. Billy Holiday. Okay, so I did not know that's how he ended up going after Billy Holiday like that. So essentially, he's trying to make an example out of one of the most famous, one of the most beloved figures in this jazz scene. Man, that is fucking terrible. And we're about to enter an especially tragic part of this story. Of course, if anyone's, you know, even remotely familiar with, uh, you know, this story. Whew, holy shit. All right, uh, what happens next? Yeah, well, so we should mention that while Billie Holiday certainly uh, smoked and sang about cannabis in her life, um, she also struggled with opioids in various forms, including heroin, um, and this made her, of course, an attractive target to Harry Anslinger because she was vulnerable to arrests but something happens in 1939 that takes Billie Holiday from a target of Harry Anslinger and the FBN to the target. And it's really telling about what this war on drugs really is all about. You, any, any guess? Hmm, 1939. So it's two years after the Marijuana Tax Act, the beginning of World War II. Um, I don't know. Tell me. In, in 1939, for the first time on stage, Billie Holiday sang a song called Strange Fruit. Oh, wow. Okay, so of course, this is a very famous song that talks about strange fruit, which is, you know, black people who have been lynched and are hanging from trees. And it's a, it's a really moving and haunting song and definitely one that sent shockwaves through America because, you know, it was pointing a finger at this incredibly ugly, ugly side of society. And no doubt it put a target right on Billie Holiday's back. 
This is one where we do have a smoking gun because almost immediately after that first performance uh, of Strange Fruit, she's contacted by the FBN and threatened by them and told in no uncertain terms to stop singing that song or they're going to come after her. And as we see many times in Billie Holiday's life, she defiantly continues to perform that song. Wow, what a badass, man. And it's wild, like, you know, if you actually listen to the song, it doesn't sound inflammatory, you know what I mean? It's a lament, I mean, it's expressing this, you know, this sadness and this anger. Southern trees bear strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood at the root Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze fucked up considering what black people had been through up until that point in America to not allow them to sing a song like that about things that had actually happened to their friends and family and ancestors. So this sets her on this path where it becomes Harry Anslinger versus Billie Holiday and the United States versus Billie Holiday as is the the title of this film and in her uh, in her autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, she said, yeah, that's just how it felt. Um, Harry Anslinger starts by, he sends uh, one of the very few uh, black undercover agents in the FBN recruited specifically to go after jazz musicians uh, to do surveillance on Billie Holiday. Um, the first time this narc busts her, He's pretending to deliver a telegram to her. Uh, After that, he just starts following her around everywhere. He promises, I'll intervene with Anslinger. I'll make it better for you if you just work with me. You know, if you just trust me. And they slow danced at a club. She's kind of trying to, like, keep this person at bay by, you know creating this relationship with him um and this narc said i had so many close conversations with her about so many things she was the type who would make anyone sympathetic because she was the loving type oh man and that's so fucked up and they're like you know surreptitiously trying to destroy this person who's just a fucking artist and and somebody who you know has been through Without going into the specifics of her very traumatic life, it's easy to understand how drug abuse can be part of a way to deal with that. Um, And this trauma, of course, continues and escalates as soon as the authorities get involved. 
Um, and they are, of course, not trying to help her with any kind of real or perceived drug problem. They're targeting her for singing a song that points out how racist everything is. And so at the same time, Billie Holiday tries to rid herself of another abusive man in her life, which is her husband and manager, Louis McKay, who uh, would sometimes physically assault her to the point that she needed to tape her ribcage up just to go on stage and perform. Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah. And so when she leaves him, uh, guess what he does? Oh, my Get, God. Something fucking terrible. Jesus. Well, guess who he goes to see in Washington, D.C.? Harry Ainslinger? Yes. Oh, my God. And together, the two of them plot to set her up for another drug bust. Man. Look, you know, a lot of times when we talk about the victims of Harry Ainslinger's drug war, the people are faceless. You know what I mean? But... In this story, you really get a sense for the level of cruelty because you're looking at an individual person, uh, you know, who represents a group that they're so keen on marginalizing and the way that they're going at this person who is just a person is just fucking heartbreaking, man. Yeah. And the, and the motive is so clear as well. Um, there's no no way to say this is being done for your own good or for compassion or even for respect for the law. Um, so again, going to Waiting for the Scream, this excellent book that I really recommend, uh, Billie Holiday was sentenced to a year in West Virginia prison where she was forced to go cold turkey and work during the days in a pigsty. Uh, in all her time behind bars, she did not sing a single note. Upon release, she was stripped of her cabaret performer's license on the grounds that listening to her might harm the morals of the public. This meant she wasn't allowed to sing anywhere that alcohol was served, which included every jazz club in the United States. So they're just very, very actively, even when she's out of prison, trying to deprive the world of her music. Yes, and the cabaret laws were used widely that way uh, against performers of all kinds for all different kinds of reasons, from uh, drug use to political affiliations. You know, it was a way to deprive you of not just your livelihood, but y in many ways, your right to express yourself. Um, and when we talk about have this sort of very bullshitty conversation around cancel culture, um, well, this is a woman not being allowed to sing because she wants to sing about racism. And we talked a little bit about the Red Scare uh, being people not allowed to make movies because they have views against capitalism. Um, you know, this is some real shit. You know, this is a year in prison working in a pigsty. It's, it's not losing your job at some fancy media place and starting a substack. stack. Uh, you know, sh She's in a really hard place. Uh, and so... Um, yeah, when fascists cancel you, they really <laughs> fucking cancel you. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That is 100%. Um, and so... But when, when she gets out of another uh, year in prison, it just so happens the FBN are facing budget cuts again. Uh, so this time... 
Harry Anslinger reassigns the case to his favorite agent, real name, Colonel George White, uh, who was known within the FBN as being a literal sadist. If you have that reputation in the FBN, you're a sadist. If, if you're the type of person that you walk into like an office filled with like racist, violent cops... And they look at you and they're like, oh, my God, this fucking guy's crazy. <laughs> like, you know, you're fucking crazy. Wow. Yes. And so, again, according to Waiting for the Scream, uh, when George White came for Billie Holiday on a rainy day at the Mark Twain Hotel in San Francisco, she insisted that she had been clean for over a year. But White's men declared that they found opium stashed in a waste paper basket next to a side room and the kit for shooting heroin in her room, and they charged her with possession. But none of that evidence was ever entered uh, by the cops. It all disappeared. Uh, oh, Billy, yeah, of course. Yeah, the old case of the disappearing evidence. Uh, <laughs> Billy Holiday insisted the drugs had been planted in her room by White, and she immediately offered to go into a clinic to be monitored. She would experience no withdrawal symptoms, she said, and that would prove that she was clean and being framed. So she did it. She checked herself in at a cost of $1,000, and she did not so much as shiver. Good on her for proving her point there. I mean, that's like, you know, that's that's rare to be able to successfully dispute planted evidence. You know what I mean? Because really, in that situation, the cops are controlling shit. It's in the fucking historical record now. She was clean. <laughs> and uh, shout out Fella Cootie for dealing with planted evidence when the cops control the shit. Yeah, deeply <laughs> planted evidence. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, this does not matter. Um, she is, they just go forward. And this guy, George White, actually had a really long history of planting drugs on people. He would pretend to be an artist and lure women to an apartment in Greenwich Village and spike their drinks. He later talked about how he loved being at the FBN because he could lie, cheat, steal, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all highest. And this is a somebody who is like lost to history in a lot of ways until you dig deep into the Anslinger story. I had never heard of this person until following through on the on the Billie Holiday story and this excellent mm. book. Um, but here's George White's career path in the government of the United States. Started out at the Border Patrol. Oh my God. Then he went to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Oh boy. Then he went to the CIA, where he, was, oh, man. <laughs> where he was involved in political assassinations. He was involved in the MK Ultra mind control experiments. And I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the CIA setting up a brothel in San Francisco with two-way mirrors, where they would spike people's drinks with LSD to observe them. Oh, my God. Our tax dollars at work right there. <laughs> And this fucking guy's career is just like a tour through the most fucked up parts of our government. Yeah, and what you sort of understand is like, to bring it to, to our modern experience, when you look at the Trump administration and you're like, what a collection of fucking crazy, corrupt, insane, lunatic people. 
Yeah. Well, that's the only people you can get to work for you when you're going to run this kind of crazy shit. And George White is emblematic. He's not the anomaly. He's the employee of the month in this yeah. kind of environment. <laughs> and um, what it really is about is the drug war is, as we talked about, a protection racket for organized crime and also a pilot program for American style fascism. Um, hmm. And George White is is at the center of all of this and is at the center of going after Billie Holiday. I was also not aware of this guy. And, you know, that's the history books for you. You know, you dig through them enough. Uh, you'll find even more people you hate. And that's really scary to think that right now at this moment, there are people just like him. I mean, you know, our country still operates with, with these people in similar positions. Uh, it's just fucked up to think about. Yeah, it is. And, and while we're not going to uh, wreak any vengeance on Colonel George White in this episode, uh, it is a good time, I think, to remind people that we are uh, getting very close to our great moment in weed history. Ah, cause this, finally, I know this has yeah. been a lot of vegetables to get to dessert uh <laughs> but we're almost there uh yeah truly to, to, to wrap up um and you know i don't people should think of billy holiday and the incredible art and beauty she brought into the world uh but to wrap up her um sad ending on this planet at, at 44 she collapsed and she was taken to the hospital where they made her wait 90 minutes on a stretcher before calling her a drug addict and turning her away. And she Ugh. was taken to another hospital uh, where the doctors predicted she didn't have very long to live, but that did not stop the FBN from showing up, planting drugs on her again, and arresting her literally in the hospital. Oh my God, on her deathbed. I mean, at that point, what the fuck are they even trying to prove and to who? You know what I mean? This is such a insane level of cruelty that they're leveling on a person after they've gotten everything that they want. You know what I mean? Like, they've, they've succeeded in completely, you know, destroying this person. And, you know, they just come in and, and charge her one more time. You know, like, they know they can't lock her up for that. She's about to die. And, I mean, that is just so deeply fucked up. And, you know, if we are trying to exemplify, you know, all of the, the horrors of this early stage of the drug war, uh, you know, from the perspective of one victim, what an end to that story. You know what I mean? It, it just really is a prime example of pigs being fucking pigs. Yeah, I think of an article that came out in the Atlantic a few years back that was just called "The Cruelty Is the Point," um, and that really helped me, even looking at our modern politics, understand—not uh, justify or excuse, but un understand where some of this is coming from. As you say, what what is the point of going after somebody who's on their deathbed? Cruelty. Um, in and of itself, um, she was denied any visitors. She was basically held as a prisoner. She wasn't allowed to have any books to read. Um, and meanwhile, out on the street, 
outside the hospital, there's protesters uh, marching and holding signs that say, let lady live, because also what her friends and the nurses at the hospital allege is that they were denying her care. They, they weren't letting her have, you know, like the equivalent of methadone that would allow them to stabilize her so she could recover. They were, in essence, there to make sure uh, she died. And as, as Billie Holiday wrote in her autobiography, imagine if the government chased sick people with diabetes, put a tax on insulin and drove it into the black market, told doctors they couldn't treat them, then sent them to jail. If we did that, everyone would know we were crazy. Yet we do practically the same thing every day in the week to sick people hooked on drugs. And so um, here's one of the here's the saddest sentence I've ever written in great moments in weed history. History. Billie Holiday died in the hospital surrounded by cops. Ugh, God damn. Yeah, that's fucking tragic. Both her mother, Billie Holiday's mother and Harry Anslinger had called jazz the devil's music. And now she said she feared literally going to hell. Oof, man. Well, I think we can rest assured that of all the people in that room, Billie Holiday is not the one who went to hell. You know, if there is a hell, Billie Holiday is not a person for for that place. (laughs) You know, she was a, a victim and she was a revolutionary and an artist. I mean, she died for really, really shitty reasons. And we should never forget that. Yeah, and if you've never heard the song Strange Fruit, um, like, you know, it's obviously not a fun listen, but it's it's a it's a real one and it's something, you know, that I think you should give it a spin and, and understand yeah. what that song said then, what it says now, and um, you know, a way to be defiant in the face of Harry Anslinger and, and we're getting to some more ways to be defiant in the face of harry anslinger but just to take him through the rest of his shitty life um in in the 40s uh there's uh, the laguardia report comes out basically shooting down everything that harry anslinger has ever said about weed but he uses his propaganda army to push it aside all throughout the 1950s as weed is continuing to spread through the underground and even into like the beats and and that whole scene, Anslinger then starts pushing for more draconian penalties by linking cannabis to the new big scare of the time, communism. So of course there is, not to shock you, no evidence that weed was a giant communist plot to destroy America from within. No, you don't say. I mean, if it if it was just one more thing to like about communism. <laughs> uh, but what it does show is, you know, from its onset, the war on drugs has worked to enforce white supremacy and the crushing of political dissent. And I think that's a one-two punch that we still see today. And then in 1961, we have Harry Anslinger as sort of the guy in the action movie he's got one more day till retirement and he comes up with one last shit cherry to put on top of the shit banana split of his whole life which is the un single convention on narcotics right so so you know uh a lot of people don't realize that 
despite the fact that we have a legal cannabis industry in this country now, the United States is the country responsible for prohibiting cannabis worldwide. You know, there was a single convention on narcotics that was aimed at, uh, you know, stopping uh, massive amounts of opiate, you know, debts. Uh, and the United States kept being like, put weed on that list and, you know, using their uh, newfound political influence, uh, you know, in the world being like, you know, having risen to be like a serious world power at that point, they leverage that uh, to get weed illegalized in places where it's an indigenous cultural plant, you know, that that's used and consumed like in a place like India, where there was an exception in the single convention on narcotics for, you know, uh, certain parts of the plant. But still, it's insane that all over the weed loving world, you know, North Africa, the Middle East, uh, you know, across Asia, that suddenly cannabis was illegal because a bunch of fucking white dudes in America are prudish fascist idiots. Do I make myself clear? I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. Ow! Fucking fascist! Ah! Stay out of Malibu, Lebowski! Ow! Stay out of Malibu, deadbeat! Finally, in 1962, uh, Harry Anslinger reaches the age of 70, which was the mandatory age of retirement uh, for federal employees, and uh, JFK puts him out to pasture, makes him retire, he returns full-time to his home in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, now we're getting to the great moments section. Yeah. <laughs> in 1974, Harry Jackwad Anslinger died in a local hospital, estranged from his family, and completely doused in morphine. Whoa. <laughs> irony or just uh you know i don't even know that's like that's fucking crazy is that he got the benefit from the uh pain relieving effects of uh you know of an opiate on his way out of this world and undoubtedly to the hell that he's been scaring everyone with uh his entire life yes absolutely and so our real great moment this is posthumous uh, great moment tree. So Harry J. Anslinger is buried in Hollidaysburg Presbyterian Cemetery, which you can find easily on Google if you need to find it. Um, and it has become somewhat of a destination for vengeance-minded stoners uh, all over the country and around the world. And you can find online different people's uh accounts of going to pay harry's final remains a visit uh, one of my favorites is in 2015 friend of the podcast nj Weedman. oh uh, yeah ed fortion the legend legendary weed activist and still going strong in jersey right now you can find him in uh trenton uh selling weed and fighting the man yeah. to this day uh he does he not give a shit that weed is recreationally legal now in New Jersey. He has been selling weed openly <laughs> in New Jersey for fucking years, man. Truly, truly a fucking weed legend. And among his legendary deeds, uh, which are a legion, is in 2015, he took his weed mobile, which is a van uh, festooned with weed murals, and he drove it to Hollidaysburg Presbyterian Cemetery. He found uh, the grave of... Harry J. Anslinger, where he smoked a joint, 
planted an American flag with a weed leaf instead of stars. And uh, actually, he does this thing called Bud Hunt, where he hides. He'll he'll go mm-hmm. online. You know, yeah, you know he's the like deal. a weed fairy. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, this is my most uh, high publicity Bud Hunt ever. Weed man's leaving a hash joint for the next Bud Hunt here at Harry Engslinger's grave, right here on his grave, or right next to his grave. I'm leaving one joint for any pothead. Hey, why don't you Penn Staters come on down and get this? Bud Hunt. Anglinger's great. This guy is filled with great moments in weed history in his own right. I mean, I, I really would love to do like a NJ Weed Man episode where we recount all of his amazing activities, but uh, that's pretty fucking awesome, man. He stuck it to Anslinger. And then, uh, you know, one other person who's been to Harry Anslinger's grave. Yeah, I do, and I'm very, very <laughs> proud of him. For this great moment in weed history, Bean, you did it, man. You did something that I think every discerning weed person wants to do in their life. Why don't you tell the people? Yeah, I I will say this was around 2008, so well uh, past the uh, Statue of Limitations, if anybody's wondering about that. Uh, This was my early days of working at high times. Uh, This was well before we knew each other a little bit and happened to be taking a road trip through uh, Pennsylvania and realized, well, there the guy is. Uh, And it took quite a bit of hunting. At that time, the exact location of his grave was not online. Uh, It was a long hunt. And then there it was, on a headstone, the only place you want to see it, Harry J. Anslinger. And so uh, I sat down, had myself a, a nice joint. I planted a seed right on top of his grave. And then I watered it with my urine. I took a piss on Harry Anslinger's grave for myself, for you, my friend, for Billie Holiday, for every single weed smoker, past, present, and future. And I got to tell you, it felt good. Hell <laughs> fucking yeah. We thank you for it, Bean, because that is a true protest. You showed that motherfucker who is six feet under that weed wins in the end. Fuck you, Harry J. Ainslinger, and fuck everything you ever did and all your cronies. You're a massive fucking prick, but you know what? You're dead. And If you were to rise from your grave today, you would be horrified at what you see because we are out here growing and smoking and buying and selling weed like it's fucking produce. So (laughs) your plan is being overturned as we speak. So stay dead, motherfucker. Fuck you. And Bean, thank you so much for that story. Uh, I've known about, you know, your act of defiance for, for a while now, but this was a really incredible way to make it truly feel like a victory, you know, after recounting some of the horrors that Harry J. Anslinger inflicted on Billie Holiday. This was a really good one, man. Thanks. Oh, thank you. And uh, why, why don't we light up our, uh, you know, we're still looking forward to that moment to to Puff Puff Pass directly, but... Let, let's let's light up our respective joints in a in a last little uh, fu yeah. to H J A. 
All right, guys, that's it for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We will be back very soon with some brand new stories for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks once again to our supporters on Patreon. And you can find us on social media. That's at G-M-I-W-H podcast on all the platforms. See you next time. that's the show folks thanks so much for listening and if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on patreon you can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and that would really help us as we research write edit and publish a new episode every weedness day great moments in weed history is written produced and performed by me david beanstock aka bean Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.